hate war as only a soldier who has lifted can, only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Dwight D. Eisenhower. Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. The Radio Hour is a project of Veterans for Peace, Chapter 168, Louisville, Kentucky, broadcast on Forward Radio, WFMP-LP, Louisville 106.5 FM. This program is also available on the Forward Radio website in streaming and podcast form at forwardradio.org. That's all lowercase and no spaces. Veterans for Peace is an international organization dedicated to building a culture of peace. We are military veterans, family members, and allies. We accept veteran members from all branches and all eras of service. Veterans for Peace has been exposing the true costs of war since 1985. As veterans, we work to heal the world and ourselves through our commitment to peace. That may seem like a tall order, maybe impossible, even ludicrous. But we must keep in mind that every journey begins with the first step. Please join us on our journey. Good day. My name is Patrick King, and I will be your host for this edition of Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. I remind you that uh, all opinions expressed on today's program are those of the presenter and do not reflect the official policies of Veterans for Peace or Forward Radio. Today's show will concentrate on the climate change slash global warming emergency that is facing us, the inhabitants of planet Earth, and our show will be in five parts. Part number one, we're going to discuss Veterans for Peace stance on global climate change and why we find it to be so vitally important. Part 2. What are some of the terms that we must have mastered in order to speak effectively on this subject? Part 3. What are military establishments saying about climate change? Part 4. Using the words of Carl Sagan and Buckminster Fuller, we will attempt to gain a new perspective to use in viewing our home on planet Earth. And part five, let's talk about what we as citizens can do about the coming crisis. Part one, we will discuss the specter of climate change slash global warming and why it has become so important to so many of us at Veterans for Peace. We are not scientists or experts in climate forecasting. However, as part of our mission to do a small part to avoid future wars, we have studied the causes of war and the history of warfare. You can think of us as a reconnaissance unit, which has gone out, and looked over the surrounding terrain, in this case, the terrain of climate change. 
We have come back to report to you what we've observed. And what we've observed is the perfect ingredients for starting future wars. Some of these ingredients include the movement of large groups of people trying to escape unlivable temperature conditions, the melting of ice uncovering deposits of valuable resources, and large shortages of food, and the disruption of food supply chains. These are just a few of the factors that could lead to armed conflict. The idea of climate change, global warming, by itself is sobering enough. But when you begin to consider the addition of humans' failure to approach global problems in the past, we must consider the possibility of greater disasters beyond what the weather will bring. There is little time left to begin the work of mitigation Part 5 of today's program, we will talk about what each of us could do to begin that work on mitigating the possibilities of disaster from climate change. Part 2, let's talk about two terms that uh, occur very frequently in this uh, discussion about our uh, world's uh, climate future. And that is uh, climate change and global warming. This will be a review for most of you, for some people perhaps a little different way of looking at it, but the overall goal here is to equip us with uh, a little more uh, information that we can use as we go forth and talk to other people about these, uh, about these vital uh, issues. And we're going to use a, uh, a resource today that comes to us from NASA and uh, simply talks about these differences here <clears throat> between the two terms. And I'll go to that article now. Uh, weather refers to atmospheric conditions that occur locally over short periods of time, from minutes to hours or days. Familiar examples include rain, snow, clouds, winds, floods, and or thunderstorms. Climate, on the other hand, refers to the long-term regional or even global average of temperature, humidity, and rainfall patterns over seasons, years, and decades. Global warming is the long-term heating of Earth's climate system observed since the pre-industrial period between 1850 and 1900. Due to human activities, primarily fossil fuel burning, which increases heat-trapping greenhouse gas levels in Earth's atmosphere. The term is frequently used interchangeably with the term climate change though the latter refers to both human 
and naturally produced warming and the effects it has on our planet. It is most commonly measured as the average increase in Earth's global surface temperature. Since the pre-industrial period, human activities are estimated to have increased Earth's global average temperature about 1 degree Celsius, or 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, a number that is currently increasing by 0.2 degrees Celsius, or 0.36 degrees Fahrenheit, per decade. Most of the current warming trend is extremely likely, that is a greater than 95% probability, the result of human activity since the 1950s and is producing an unprecedented rate over decades to millennia. So, what is climate change? Climate change is a long-term change in the average weather patterns that have come to define Earth's local, regional, and global climates. These changes have a broad range of observed effects that are synonymous with the term. Changes observed in Earth's climate since the early 20th century are primarily driven by human activities, particularly fossil fuel burning, which increases heat-trapping greenhouse gas levels in Earth's atmosphere, raising Earth's average surface temperature. These human-produced temperature increases are commonly referred to as global warming. Natural processes can also contribute to climate change. They include uh, internal variability, which a couple good examples is the El Nino-La Nino patterns that occur out in the Pacific Ocean, and external forces, examples being volcanic activity, changes in the Earth's energy output, and variations in Earth's orbit. Scientists use observation from the ground, air and space, along with theoretical models to monitor and study past, present, and future climate change. Climate data records provide evidence of climate change key indicators, such as global land and ocean temperature increases, rising sea levels, ice loss at Earth's poles, and in mountain glaciers. Frequencies and severity of severity changes in extreme weather, such as hurricanes, heat waves, wildfires, droughts, floods, and precipitation, and cloud and vegetation cover changes, to name but a few. There is a brief overview of the basic differences between climate change and uh, global warming. Uh, in this program, from now on, we're simply going to join those together. You've noticed earlier in the program I've referred to uh, climate change slash global warming. From now on, we'll just eliminate the slash. It's going to be climate change global warming. And this will provide us with some uh, basis to start talking to people about the climate. Thank you. We will return in a few minutes with the remainder of our program. You are listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, brought to you today on WFMP Low Power, 106.5 FM, 
Forward Radio, located in Louisville, Kentucky. If you'd like to learn more about Forward Radio, go to forwardradio.org for a lot of useful information about this fine radio station. WFMP also depends on the kindness of its listeners to uh, keep us on the air. And as you visit the website, there is an opportunity to contribute, and it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour, and we'll continue with part three of today's program on climate change, global warming. And part three, as we promised, will be a look at uh, some of the military establishments around the world and what they have been saying about uh, global climate change. Uh, We'll start off uh, with a comment made uh, in a uh, Senate Armed Services uh, Committee hearing that held way back uh, about uh, three years ago now in July of uh, 2017 uh, by a vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Air Force General Paul J. Silva. And uh, we will comment uh, directly uh, on General Silva's words here uh, that came off the uh, transcript of this particular uh, Senate Armed Services uh, Committee meeting, or hearing, rather. And so these are uh, uh, General Paul Silva, U.S. Air Force's words, and I quote, The dynamics that are happening in our climate will drive uncertainty and will drive conflict. And I'll just provide one example of how that can happen, and this is a man-made problem. The dams along the Nile River control the flow of water into what was the fertile crescent of Egypt. And any change to that water flow causes the Egyptians to become more hostile to their neighbors, who are putting dams upstream of the Egyptian stretch of the Nile River. I could build that argument in a variety of countries around the world, and those are man-made problems, not directly related to climate change, but related to how we as humans change our environment. If you extend that argument to the kinds of things that might happen, if we see tidal rises, if we see increasing weather patterns of drought and flood and forest fires and other natural events that happen inside of our environment, then we're going to have to be prepared for what that means in terms of potential instability in regions of the country where those impacts happen particularly today where there's massive food instability. The Sahel in Africa is a classic example where a small drought over a limited period of time can decimate the crops and cause instability and make that an area fertile for recruitment of extremists because they see no other way. Similarly, you could look at the decimation of the fisheries off Somalia that contributed to piracy because the fishermen couldn't make their livelihood by doing what they do best, which is fishing on the fishing grounds of Somalia. So I think we need to be prepared for those. 
It will cause us to have to address questions like humanitarian disaster relief. It will also cause us to have to focus on places where climate instability might cause actual political instability in regions of the world we hadn't previously paid attention to, unquote. The words of uh, now-retired uh, General Paul Silva, who at the time was uh, on the uh, uh, Joint, uh, the, uh, joint uh, Chief of Staff. He was a uh, vice chairman of the, of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, now-retired. But it does reflect a type of thinking that was going on at that point. I don't have anything close at hand as, as a recent quote out of the U.S. military, but uh, we'll continue on and look at some things that have been said by some other of the foreign militaries. It is very difficult to uh, obtain recent information on what the official policy of the Russian military is on climate change, global warming, However, we do know that uh, because of their vast coastline on the northern waters, including the Barents Sea, the Bering Sea, and the Sea of Okutsk, to name a few, that they are building and maintaining a fleet of icebreakers to be used in keeping future shipping lanes open in favor of their commerce and that of other nations, offering ample opportunities for conflict uh, with uh, other nations seeking opportunities in that region of the world. And again, uh, it's uh, not easy to find any up-to-date information uh, that would uh, discuss China's official military policy on climate change, global warming. However, it is the opinion of many China experts that because they are linked to the U.S. via trade and other commercial interests, that they are waiting to see which direction the U.S. is taking. And, of course, at the present time, the leadership of the United States is taking virtually no direction in terms of climate change, global warming. We do have, however, an interesting article from uh, the uh, December 10th, 2019 NATO Review. The NATO Review is a publication that, uh, while does not reflect the official policies of NATO, it is uh, a forum where those officials of NATO can uh, peruse ideas put forward by uh, thinkers and other disciplines. In this case, uh, this is an article written by a, uh, a Dutch uh, man, and it's interesting from the respect that uh, it talks about global climate change in very direct terms, uh, some of the most direct that I've seen. Uh, the Dutch uh, man is Alexander Verbeck. He is an environmentalist, and uh, he had been uh, invited in this case because of his uh, work in uh, in these areas to uh, do this article for NATO, NATO rather, and we'll be quoting from a part of this uh, part of this NATO article, and and quoting from uh, the NATO review and uh, Mr. Verbeck's words, uh, he says that uh, on the eve of the last UN climate change conference, 
a UN report made clear that urgent action is needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which are contributing to global warming. A hotter planet will increasingly lead to security challenges. More awareness, better forecasting tools, as well as new organizational structures may be needed. I believe that one of the most worrying things about current developments on our planet is the lack of awareness and thus widespread complacency about climate change among people, in the media, and at governmental level. Our societies tend to suffer from short-termism, and there is a lack of urgency to deal with long-term threats. The media focuses on stories that will bring in money through views, clicks, and likes. Governments concentrate on winning the next elections, which makes current spending on preparing for the world of the future less popular. Proposing relevant measures to encourage people to fly, excuse me, to fly less and eat less meat are still considered a career-ending move in mainstream politics. And even on a personal level, we all know that the climate emergency is generally not a welcome topic of conversation during dinner with friends and family. We have yet to see effective and visionary decision-making that could preserve our vulnerable planet from environmental degradation. The damage to our planet is globalizing faster than the global coordinated responses that are needed. There is a tendency to wait for others to act first, to point at other countries' contributions to the problem, and to close our hearts, our eyes, and our borders to those people who are most affected. The impact of climate change that we already see now is only the beginning of more significant changes to come. A growing but still relatively small part of the public is beginning to realize this and is calling on governments to act much more decisively. Greta Thunberg's school strike for climate has inspired a global youth protest against the lack of action of their parents' generation. And other initiatives like the Sunrise Movement and the Extinction Rebellion have also taken to the streets to demand more action. These new movements join the countless scientists who have warned for decades that we are doing too little too late. The words of uh, Alexander Verbeck, and he is a Dutch environmentalist. He works uh, mostly on the linkage between security and Earth's accelerating environmental crisis. Uh, he created the Planetary Security Initiative and is policy director at the Environmental Development Resource Center in Brussels. Uh, Brussels, Belgium is also home of the NATO headquarters. Um, I find it quite interesting that uh, even though this is not an official uh, publication, or excuse me, it is an official publication, but not an official, uh, doesn't represent the official policies of NATO, this is the sort of information that uh, that leading figures working in NATO will refer to. And I was quite encouraged to see him refer back to uh, uh, the climate uh, dissonant movements of uh, Sunrise and uh, the uh, Extinction Rebellion and, of course, the very famous Greta Thunberg. We will re return with our program in a moment. You are listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. Uh, brought to you uh, on the facilities of uh, WFMP Low Power, 
106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we would love to hear from you any comments that you would have about this program or anything in general. And we could be reached at our email address, which is vfp168 at veteransforpeace.org. And, of course, Veterans for Peace is written out fully. We would really love to hear from you, and uh, we would love to also have you stay tuned. We'll be returning momentarily with the remainder of our program. Welcome back to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour. We will continue with part four of our program on climate change, global warming. With words of Dr. Carl Sagan and R. Buckminster Fuller. It is always so amazing that there is not a global effort to save our home here on earth for future generations of humans and other living creatures. Could it be that enough of us do not appreciate the fact that our home here is fragile and precious? We now have a chance to listen to people who express the idea of how unique our home is. And we will start with Carl Sagan. On February 14, 1990, famed scientist Carl Sagan gave us an incredible perspective on our home planet that had never been seen before. As NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft was about to leave our solar system in 1989, Sagan, who was a member of the mission's imaging team, pleaded with officials to turn the camera around to take one last look back at Earth before the spaceship left our solar system. The resulting image with the Earth as a speck less than 0.12 pixels in size became known as the pale blue dot. Astronauts had already taken plenty of beautiful photos of our planet at that point, and this grainy, low-resolution snapshot was not one of them. But instead of beauty, this one-of-a-kind picture showed the immeasurable vastness of space and our undeniable small place within it. The words of uh, Candy Hansen, a... Uh, uh, scientists at the time at Jet Propulsion Laboratory probably say it best, and I quote, I was struck by how special Earth was as I saw it shining in a ray of sunlight. It also made me think about how vulnerable our tiny planet is. Voyager 1 had already finished its primary mission of studying Jupiter and Saturn towards the end of 1980, but its mission was extended and continues to this day so it could study the far reaches of interstellar space. First launched in 1977, the robotic spacecraft had already captured incredible images of planets within the solar system, and eventually researchers, researchers rather, needed to disable its camera so it would have the power it needed to keep transmitting back to NASA once it left the solar system. The striking photograph almost never happened. Early 
on in Voyager's mission, Sagan had tried to get the look back at Earth. But others on the team worried that the sun would end up frying the camera. But eventually, with the mission winding down, Sagan finally got his wish. A last-minute Valentine's Day gift in 1990. Again, uh, the uh, words of Ms. Hansen, quote, You know, I still get chills down my back. Because here was our planet, bathed in this ray of light. And it just looked incredibly special, unquote. Voyager 1 took a series of family portraits from nearly 14 billion miles out before its camera was turned off for good. The spacecraft is now the most distant human-made object in space at roughly 12 billion miles away, and it takes about 17 hours for it to transmit data back to Earth. Sagan would later write about the photograph and the deeper meaning he gleaned from it in his 1994 book, Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space. And we will now quote Dr. Sagan's words from that book. Quote, From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it. Everyone you love. Everyone you know. Everyone you've ever heard of. Every human being who ever was. Lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering. Thousands of confident religions ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one quarter of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, 
There is no hint that help will come from elsewhere. We have to save ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment. The earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known, unquote. So the words of Dr. Carl Sagan, which can give us all a basis to start looking at our home with different eyes. It is the only home that we'll ever have. Thank you. Now we will visit the words of a man who's been acclaimed by some as one of the greatest thinkers to have ever lived. He also was a veteran, and he was a veteran of the United States Navy, serving during World War I on uh, two different vessels as a young uh, lieutenant junior grade. It was the USS Great Northern, a troop ship, and also the USS Seattle, which was an armored cruiser of the so-called Great War. His name was Richard Buckminster Fuller. He became famous under the name of R. Buckminster Fuller, and people also would refer to him I'm not sure whether to his face or not, but they referred to him as Bucky. Uh, Mr. Fuller was uh, an American architect, systems theorist, author, designer, inventor, and uh, futurist. Uh, He published more than 30 books. He uh, coined and popularized uh, lots of terms, uh, such as, and we'll be talking about Spaceship Earth, ephemeralization, synergenic, or synergetic rather. He also developed numerous inventions, mainly architectural designs, and popularized the widely known geodesic dome. Carbon molecules known as fullerenes were later named by scientists for their structural and mathematical resemblance to geodesic structures. Fuller was also an early environmental uh, activist, aware of the Earth's finite resources, and promoted a principle he termed ephemeralization, which according to futurist and Fuller disciple Stephen Brand, was defined as doing more with less. Resources and waste from crude, inefficient products could be recycled into making more valuable products, thus increasing the efficiency of the entire process. Our Buckminster Fuller was an extremely interesting person and involved in many, many different uh, projects and uh, many, many different disciplines. Uh, It could be uh, several radio shows to talk about uh, Mr. Fuller. But there's one area that we are particularly interested in today, and that's a uh, 
a very short book that was published in 1969 titled Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth. And uh, Operating Manual for Spaceship Earth was uh, came out of an address uh, that he gave at the 50th Annual Convention of the American Planners Association uh, that was put on a couple years earlier in Washington, D.C. And the idea with Spaceship Earth is that uh, he talks about his idea of Earth as, an, as a true operating system, and he has a chapter that is titled Spaceship Earth. And uh, that chapter uh, sets up the idea that the Earth is a spaceship with the sun as its energy, and we are all astronauts. The idea of the Earth uh, as a mechanical vehicle that requires maintenance, and that if we do not keep it in good order, it will cease to function. And therein lies the lesson that we need to talk about and gives us basis for another way of thinking about the, uh, the place that we call home. Carl Sagan, with his idea of the pale blue dot, showed us our home in its splendid isolation in this uh, unfathomable, gigantic universe that we exist in. The long-range view, the idea that we are located on this very, very tiny sphere. Fuller goes ahead, I feel, and talks about the, the, the closer-in view. For us to think strictly on the idea that, uh, that this tiny uh, bit of, of uh, rock that Sagan so eloquently talked about is a system that can and should be maintained by the, uh, by the inhabitants of the planet. Uh, it's an idea that doesn't probably play very well into our uh, human uh, greed and our human desire to acquire and to turn everything into some sort of commercial adventure. And in this case, uh, we have to look at the actual home that we live on as a home, as an irreplaceable object flying through space. And it's our responsibility to maintain it, not only for ourselves, uh, depending on your age and how long you plan to live, but also for the posterity, for our children and grandchildren and their children and their grandchildren. And when we enter into conversation about <clears throat> this home of ours, we should never forget the fact that it is very reminiscent of an actual spaceship. Bucky Fuller was pretty close to the idea as, uh, and in the book. There is a large, large volume of information available about our Buckminster Fuller. He was the type of person whose thinking is not going to go away and it's available in many different shapes and forms if you simply go to the internet and look him up. But for our, uh, pro uh, for our purposes today, I would like to just bear in mind this very and very important idea that for me is encapsulated in the simple words of Spaceship Earth. Thank you for your kind attention. We will be returning shortly with the uh, uh, part five of today's program. 
You are listening to WFMP Low Power, 106.5 FM Louisville, Kentucky. Today's program is a five-part look at climate change slash global warming. We at VFP Chapter 168 would like to extend a welcome to all people who share our quest for peace. If you would like to join this effort, please look up veteransforpeace.org or search Facebook for Veterans for Peace. Thank you, and now we return to part five of our program. Thank you for staying uh, tuned, and now part five. In part one of the program today, we talked about the threat uh, that global warming presents in terms of possibilities for future war. In part two, we heard from a NASA report that explained the difference between the terms climate change and global warming. Part three was a look at what some of the military leaders around the world are saying about climate change and the possibilities that it'll affect uh, their future planning. Part four, we had a look at a very eloquent uh, reading that came from a book written by Carl Sagan that gave us an insight into our place in the universe on this tiny little rock sailing around our sun. And in the same part, we talked about the uh, idea of Spaceship Earth as it was uh, discussed and brought up and this term coined by R. Buckminster Fuller. The first four parts of today's program were designed for people who already understand and know that there is a problem and to give a little bit more ammunition when they go out to discuss uh, the global climate change, global warming with uh, friends, associates, or wherever they might have an opportunity to discuss it. Uh, we know that uh, it's very easy to state the problem. We all understand that it is always very easy to state what the problem is. The big problem comes when we need to do something about the problem. And in the case of global climate change, we are the believers in climate change. I'm not talking about people who need to be convinced of climate, of climate change. But for those people who believe in it, who believe that it's an existential threat to our very survival here on the planet, they are going to have to be the ones who are going to become responsible to go out and try to get some action. We understand at this point that it's almost impossible, okay, let's just say impossible, to depend on the current leadership in a lot of countries, including our own, to do something in terms of looking at climate change as a huge problem and making steps necessary to mitigate the effects of that climate change. It's too late to do a reversal of climate change, but it is not too late to begin the planning and taking the actions that will mitigate some of the worst possibilities and then to work eventually on the bigger items, the ones that will help to reduce the load of carbon in the atmosphere. In part five of today's program, 
we will look at a couple of different ideas. Uh, they will be probably a little redundant. Uh, one of them was going to co is coming from Canada. It's coming from a man named David Suzuki, who uh, at one time presented a very good science program uh, back when uh, cable television had science programs. The second set of uh, things, a list of things that everyone could do to help uh, uh, work toward mitigating climate change comes from an article in Forbes magazine. I thought it would be interesting to uh, compare uh, a scientist in Canada uh, against a fairly well-known business publication here in the United States. And that's why I did mention that there'll be a little bit of repetition between the two, but it'll give us a, a, a kind of a round idea of at least the thinking in parts of North America. In future programs, we will be talking about this at length. But for right now, I'd like to get the idea started that it is possible for each one of us to do something. So we will start with the uh, 10 uh, things that you could do that uh, come from the David Suzuki Foundation up in Canada. Uh, number one, they say unite for bold climate action. And by that, I believe that uh, here in the United States, and in Canada also, I guess, that there's good organizations that you're probably, a lot of you are very familiar with. They're easy to find. And that you could start there as a place to begin a united effort. Number two, they say, use energy wisely. Well, that's a really good idea, and it's a great place to start. We know that individual efforts, unless everybody in the world decided to join in, is probably not going to go very far, but at least it will give you the uh, credibility as you go on and uh, uh, find your way into conversations with other people. Uh, number three, they say uh, utilize renewables, of course goes without a doubt. Number four, eat for a climate stable planet. And uh, you've all been uh, aware of that probably. The, uh, the suggestions are that you eat more meat-free meals, you buy organic and shop local, don't waste food, and start growing your own food. Number five, and one I particularly like, is start a climate conversation. And part of what we were talking about today is providing some um, ideas that you can use as you move forward that will help you develop your own way of starting this conversation about the climate. Number six, the Canadians say, green your commute. Very good idea. Seven, consume less, waste less, and enjoy life more. Yes, as we move forward into this brave new world, we are going to all have to do exactly that. Number eight, invest in renewables and divest from fossil fuels. Very good advice. Number nine, support or join youth-led movements. And there are some excellent ones. 
the youth-led movements right now, of course, is the school strike led by Greta Thunberg, very famous young lady from Sweden, and also something called the Sunrise Movement uh, that you could recommend to younger people. And uh, there's plenty of information by simply Googling the Sunrise Movement. And number 10 is another one I like particularly well. They say, get politically active and vote. There's no doubt that political action is probably the key to a lot of getting the work done toward mitigating climate change. Right now, with politics, and particularly in the United States, the way it is, and being dominated by big money, and that big money in a lot of cases coming from big carbon, everyday folks like you and me can make a huge, huge uh, change in what goes on by letting politicians know that they are now accountable to the people that go out and actually vote. Let's take a look at what Forbes magazine has to say next. So here are nine suggestions that come from Ford Magazine, albeit as an issue that's now about uh, three or a little bit over three years old. Uh, number one, they say, become a vegetarian, or better yet, a vegan. Again, that relates back to uh, what the Canadians were saying, which is essentially boils down to, I guess, eat less meat. But uh, Forbes goes all the way with the uh, using the V word here. Uh, number two, it's also a, a good suggestion, and uh, which says eat organic if you can and when you can. Number three, buy local. And again, the... Uh, uh, Canadians mentioned the same thing. Always a very good idea. Number four, live in the climate. And they are talking about, in that case, the logical keep your thermostat uh, setting low uh, and so that you can lower the amount of energy being used to heat and cool your own home. Line dry your clothes. Yes, that's a time-honored good idea. Here, number six says, vote with your feet. And by that, I guess they mean that uh, when it's possible, walk, ride a bike, or take some means of transportation other than the automobile. And number seven, if you have children, do not use them as an excuse to rage war on the environment. I have children, therefore I must buy meat, goes the thinking. I have children, therefore I must drive a car. This is like saying, I have children, therefore I must destroy their future. Researchers estimate each child increases a parent's carbon footprint by nearly six times. Raise little vegetarians who know how to live in the climate and use public transit. Survival skills for the 21st century. Number eight, reduce and reuse before you recycle. Great idea. And number nine is the old offset your carbon emissions, which gets to be pretty technical, and we won't go any farther with that one. It's an interesting contrast between what the Canadians have to say. But the important takeaways here for me are that we must at once become more politically active, I 
presume our listeners here at this station are politically active. So if you can get more politically active, do it. And the other item especially uh, to consider is to start these conversations. Be willing to talk to people. Bring it up. It is a difficult thing to do. People do not want to talk about climate change. For some people, they feel that it's uh, beyond their lifetime. And if they don't have uh, children or grandchildren, well, it's a hard thing for them to get interested in. But it's incredibly important for us to start these conversations, know what you're talking about, and go after it. It is an incredibly important thing to do. Thank you so much for listening to today's program. It's always a pleasure to have you here. We would love to hear from you about this program. We would love to talk to you. If you're interested in being on the program, please contact us. Our email address is vfp168 at veteransforpeace.org. Veterans for Peace is written out fully. Please let us know what you think, bad or good. And if you'd like to be on the program, we can take care of that one for you too. In conclusion, this taping is being done at a time when the world, and particularly the United States, is in the throes of a pandemic. Whether we learn anything from this pandemic is debatable. I hope we do. I hope that it's a precursor for action in lots of different ways in the future. But there's one thing we are learning for certain, and it's this thing that we've been told by many, many sources within the climate activist movement. We cannot rely on the government to help us. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, the information that they're putting out would actually harm us. So it is now more important than ever to take that lesson and to be willing to go forward and do the things that need to be done by us, the citizens. We are, to coin an old phrase, or to repeat an old phrase rather, the 99%. And we have a tremendous amount of power if we're willing to use it. And it may start with just a few people. Remember, the large march on Washington on the inauguration uh, of the present president uh, was started by just a few ladies conversing on Facebook. Thank you so much again for your kind uh, attention today, and uh, we will look for you on some future program of Veterans for Peace Radio Hour on WFMP Low Power 106.5 FM. Louisville, Kentucky. You have been listening to Veterans for Peace Radio Hour here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP, 106.5 FM, Louisville, Kentucky. We have enjoyed our time with you today and look forward to having you back sometime soon. Please join us on the path to peace and nonviolence. We can imagine a world without war. And no matter what the journey is, it will always begin with the first step. For more information, please go to VeteransForPeace168.org or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening.